we go. We've got sound on the Sunday final of Advent. So depending on your personality and your to-do list, this is either a time to relax or a time to worry or a time for the adrenaline to pump. And a lot of people like to save their Christmas shopping until Christmas Eve. I used to be one of those people until uh, kids came along, and now I just wait until the 20s. You know, you've got to have to live life a little bit on the edge. There's great deals to be had if you wait until the very end. But I remember as a, as a child, as the 20s approached in December, I remember feeling like that those days, those three, four, five days before Christmas, feeling like the longest days of the year. And now that I'm an adult and I understand winter solstice, I can, uh, I can actually find out, oh, they actually are the longest days of the year. But, but there's, a, there's this feeling of anticipation. There's this, this feeling of wonder as children especially, they wait for Christmas to come. And I remember as a child, school's out, sometimes even the late afternoon as it got dark, I remember sitting on my couch um, next to the Christmas tree, and sitting, I guess, is a little bit of, of a... Of a stretch because I was more, I was sitting on the arm of the chair, which I wasn't supposed to do. And I was kind of laying down next to the base of the Christmas tree. And my brother would be on the other couch opposite of me and the tree would be in the middle. And in our home, we weren't allowed to touch any of the presents. We couldn't pick them up. We couldn't shake them, move them, anything like that. But we would, we would move the branches. So we'd move the lower branches and we'd kind of inspect and we'd work together. My brother would be on one side, I'd be on the other. And we'd look, oh, oh, this is a new one. This one says to Keith from mom and dad. Great, you know, you add it up on your tally. And I remember once in a while we'd see that to mom from dad and we'd think, what a waste. Like, good looking present and it's two smookums from, you know, sweet pea or whatever. What a waste. Like, and so we, you know, we kind of help each other strategize. We'd, we'd count them up. And then, you know, what we do, what everybody does, you looked at the gift that's, gift that's wrapped up and we'd wonder, you know, what, what is it? And then we'd hope. We'd hope for what we wanted it to be. And those words, wonder and hope, they've attached themselves to Christmas. It's tough to imagine Christmas without wonder or Christmas without hope. They seem to represent almost every person's perspective of this time of year. Even for those who have no interest in the Christmas story, there's still hope. There's still wonder. Because there's other elements of the season where they get these things from. Some people may not care about Christmas carols or the baby, but there's other things. There's the people, there's the lights, there's the tradition, there's the merchandise, there are the feelings of this type of season. No matter what you seem to believe, there's something unique about this time of year because it's full of wonder and it's full of hope. And these words aren't just words, they're experiences. We experience these things together at the end of December. And for many, the experience of the story, the biblical story, is what continues to give people hope. Those who choose to follow Jesus will tell you that Jesus, in fact, is the hope of the world. Take away the story of Christmas, take away the story of the birth of Christ, and you might as well take away hope too, because all you'd be left with is hope in yourself. And many people would say that if you take away that hope and you're left with yourself, then you truly would be left in a hopeless situation. But for all the attention that hope gets at this time of year and for all the attention that this story gets for this time of year, the stories that capture the birth of Jesus, the stories that talk about the story, interestingly enough, they're mostly quiet about the word 
hope. The strange thing is the gospel stories almost never use the word hope. I don't mean to say that they don't connect the essence or the theme of hope to the birth of Jesus, but they just don't use that word. They describe the events in different ways. There are four gospel books in our Bibles, and even though the names of these men aren't quite as popular, parents aren't giving them to their children anymore, they're still timeless. We've got Matthew and Mark, Luke and John, and together they've written what we now have through our editors, 89 chapters, 89 chapters of stories about Jesus, 3,779 verses, and I didn't bother to count all the words because I didn't have enough time this week. But you would think for all these chapters, all these verses, all these words, how many times would the word hope be used? Dozens? Hundreds? Amazingly, only five times. Five times the word hope appears in our gospel stories. Once in Matthew, once in John, and three times in the gospel of Luke. Now, before we throw Mark under the bus together, we should remember that Mark's story is the shortest. His is just 16 chapters. So maybe if we gave him you know, more room to write, he would have written all a bunch about, about hope. But only five times between these three men. Now, Matthew, when he uses the word hope, he kind of cheats, at least in my mind. He quotes the prophet Isaiah. Pastor Brad read this part of Scripture last week. The prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, he talks about the, the servant of the Lord. How this promised servant of the Lord will be one in whom the nations place their hope. But, you know, that's really from Isaiah's book. It's not really Matthew's words, right? So, I mean, he quotes someone, and like a good writer, he footnotes it and gives Isaiah the credit, and that's the one time he uses hope in his story. John does something quite similar. When he uses the word hope in his gospel, he quotes Jesus. Now, certainly nothing wrong with quoting Jesus. That's a pretty good idea to do. But that's the one time that he uses the word hope. And Luke does the same thing. He also quotes Jesus in his gospel. But the next two times that he uses the word hope, he does something very, very different. The next two times... Uh, He does not use the word hope. It doesn't come from the mouth of Jesus. It doesn't come from a prophet who's talking about Jesus. It comes from two other stories. And he uses hope to describe what people think about Jesus and what people want from Jesus. And the gospel story hinges on the resurrection story. The Christian faith is not based on a system of beliefs. It's based on a series of events. And the biggest event of all is the resurrection of Jesus. Without the resurrection, everything else falls apart. As the Apostle Paul once said, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our faith is smoke and mirrors. Without the resurrection, there's no hope. Which makes me think of what it would have been like during those days after Jesus had been killed. After he had been crucified, after he was declared dead, after he'd been put in that tomb, what must that have felt like? Because you can't really have this this great leader of a new movement if the leader is no longer there. What happens to hope in that situation? Now, I would like to think that I would have been full of hope, lots of faith, lots of courage, uh, trying to figure out how this would all work together. But I'm a realist, and I'm guessing I probably would have been devastated. And what's interesting about Luke's story is he tells a couple of stories about what those first followers of Jesus experienced after Jesus had been killed. 
we get, a, we get a glimpse of what they were doing, what they were saying, and what they were feeling. And we read about it in the 24th chapter of Luke's story. So if you have your Bibles, go to the very last chapter of his story, Luke chapter 24. And I'm going to summarize the, the first part of that, and then we'll carry on and look specifically at what Luke says himself. So early in the morning on the first day of the week, this is Luke chapter 24, uh, we have the women, the, the women, female followers of Jesus. They're the ones who take action. Now we learn at the end of the previous chapter that they've prepared spices and perfumes and they're going to go to the tomb and they're going to anoint the, the dead body of Jesus, which has been wrapped up. That's how they, they did things in those days. They put it in the tomb, they roll a stone there. So they want to go and they want to anoint his body and, and pay their respects and loves to Jesus who has passed away. And so they go. And when they arrive, they see that the stone's been rolled away from the tomb. And instead of seeing a corpse all wrapped up in linen, they see uh, linen itself, actually. They they don't see anything there. They see the angels. They report two angels that they speak with. And the angels tell them that Jesus isn't there. And they tell him he is risen. And once they hear these words, Luke tells us, in verse 7 actually, that they remember the words of Jesus. And they start putting this story together. Wait a second. Now we remember Jesus telling us about how he must die and then how he would rise again. And here these two angels are telling us that this is exactly what has happened. And so the women, they leave. They retreat, half scared, half excited, probably a whole bunch of other emotions that we can only imagine. And they meet up with the rest of the disciples. There's 11 of them now. Judas is no longer. And so that's the first thing they go and do. They meet up with the 11 and they tell them the story, or at least they try to communicate this story to them. But Luke tells us that the group doesn't buy it. In verse 11, Luke tells us that they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. And really, who can blame the disciples? I mean, it's early in the morning. You've got your, your female friends that have gone on a walk. They've, they've come back, and they're talking about a whole bunch of things. I mean, their eyes are probably huge, like they've seen a ghost. They're out of breath from running. And I'm guessing they probably smell like some weird combination of dust, sweat, and perfume, you know, all together. And they're rattling off this, this crazy story. And I know I would be thinking, you know what? Just settle down. It's been three days. Um, we're all a bit devastated here, and now you're talking about angels and nothing there, and, and, and you know, just, just calm down. This seems like nonsense. Luke tells us their words were like nonsense, which is kind of a nice way of saying they were giving out some silly talk. But regardless of how foolish these women seemed, Peter chooses to investigate. Good old Peter. He takes action. And so Luke tells us that Peter gets up and he runs to the tomb. When John tells his story in in his gospel, he says that he went as well. He actually tells us that he outran Peter, which I I always kind of like that. And and so the two of them, Peter and John, out of these 11 disciples, out of all these other followers, it's a larger group, there's two of them that take action. Why? Why did only two go? Were they full of hope? These two have a little bit more hope than all the other people? Were they a bit more gullible, these two? Were they the two that were in the best shape? You know, practically speaking, maybe they were the ones that were sent to go. Well, we don't know. But they reached the tomb. And Luke tells us the rest of the story. Luke completes the story by saying that Peter investigates these things himself. And he sees the strips of linen lying by themselves. John says he says it too as well 
in his gospel. And so even though what the women told them seemed like nonsense, they go to the tomb, and it's exactly as what the women had said. And I love this part of the story in, in the last part of that verse, in verse 12. Luke says that Peter went away wondering to himself what had happened. Right there in this story, Peter is struck with this awe of wonder. This is exactly what the women have talked about. And yet, what possibly could have happened? Earlier this week, on my day off, I was trying to finish a very simple project in my home. Admittedly, I've been trying to do this project now for two months. Two months, which is very, quite, you know, I'm, I'm ashamed of this because it's literally about a 20-minute project. It's been taking two months to do this project. And so finally, the kids were, were um, out, of, out of the way. I had time to myself. It's like, I'm going to finish this project. Great, no problem. So uh, what I'm doing, actually, I'm just, I'm just putting on another lock on our door so that our children, you know, when we aren't looking, don't open up the door and just leave the house because this is a fear that I have as a father. The, ki- the kids are just going to run away, right? So, so I'm just putting this simple little lock onto my front door. So I put it in there and I close the door. Well, it doesn't quite fit. I need a chisel. I just need, you know, take off eighth of an inch or so on the door jam, do that. No problem. I go to the garage. I've got a chisel, right? I go to where my chisel is. It's not there. No problem. I go to the next spot where maybe I would have put it because, you know, I wasn't in the right state of mind. It's not there either. And I keep looking for my chisel. And as I look, what am I doing? I'm wondering, I'm wondering, where in the world is this chisel? Well, to fast forward the story, because I can tell you're already getting bored, I looked for like an hour for this chisel. Project could have been done, you know, way earlier. I never find the chisel. I get to the point of not caring if I ever actually can use the chisel again. In fact, I thought about this. If a genie appeared to me and said, okay, Keith, I'm going to make you a deal. You can never see your chisel again. You can never use your chisel again. But I will tell you, what happened to your chisel. I'll tell you where it went, where it's hiding, what has become of it, but in exchange, you can never have it or use it again. I'd say, done. I'd like to know this. At least my curiosity would be satisfied. All of us, all of us wonder about things that happen. It's part of what it means to be human. We're curious. We wonder We hope. And yet there's some things in life that we don't know for sure. And there's some things in life that we can't know for sure. But this doesn't stop it. Doesn't stop us from wondering, does it? And as we begin to wonder, we start to figure out what we'll believe. As our mind starts wondering, we begin to create this story, this scenario in our mind, and we begin to believe it. Well, Luke's story isn't finished. He leaves Peter there, wondering, wondering about what has happened, wondering what the women have seen, wondering what he's seen, wondering what he's going to do. But as he leaves this story, Luke tells us another story. And this is a story that I really want us to focus on this morning. This is a story about hope and what it does in our lives. At the end of of, uh, the story about Peter, we reach another story. And it's a story about two men, two men who happen to be going on a walk. They're followers of Jesus, and they're going towards a town called Emmaus, which is about seven miles away from Jerusalem. And they do exactly what you and I do when we don't have technology or we've run out of batteries and we're traveling somewhere. They talk, right? These guys are walking, and they're talking. And presumably, one of the reasons why they're doing so much talking is because this is a day unlike any other day that they've known and experienced before or ever will again, because it's the same day. 
It's the third day after Jesus has died. They know the story of what the women have experienced. And they're talking. And they're wondering. And they're hoping. And as they're doing this, we find out that Jesus himself joins their conversation. He walks up with them. And he asks them what's going on, and they have quite an incredible conversation. It starts in verse 13 in chapter 24. But what happens is, and and this is one of those things that just makes me ask questions, as Jesus appears to them and as they walk, Luke tells us that their eyes kept from recognizing him. Now, we don't know if this is some sort of divine intervention thing where, where their eyes are kept from literally recognizing who he is, or maybe they're just so distraught and so focused on the road and what they're talking about that they don't, they don't even really give him a good look. You know, some of us, in fact, it happened to me this morning as I was talking to someone who shaved, shaved his beard, I, I kind of asked, you know, something's, something's changed. And, and, you know, obviously I recognized who he was. But, you know, isn't it amazing sometimes someone cuts their hair or they get glasses or, you know, they just, they wear a different shirt sometimes for some of us. And we have trouble recognizing them a little bit. Like, who are you? Maybe this is what happened. And maybe, we don't know about this either, maybe when you have an experience like being resurrected from the dead, it does enough to change you that other people don't recognize you. The rest of the stories we find out of people interacting with Jesus seem to be a bit perplexed by him as well. But no matter the reason, who cares why they don't recognize him? The, three, the two travelers that went on the road are now three. Jesus is right there with him. And so Jesus says to them, what is this conversation that you're having with each other as you walk? What are you guys talking about? And Luke tells us, they stood still looking sad. Now, based on how Luke tells us, it appears that they literally stopped in their tracks. They stopped walking and they looked at Jesus and they had a sad look on their face. They were gloomy. They were dejected. Almost as if the question that Jesus asked them personally hurt them somehow. And then the traveler named Cleopas, he answers Jesus by saying, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? In other words, what are you, nuts? Are you kidding me? You have no idea what we're talking about here? And Jesus says to him, what things? Now, regardless of what you believe about Jesus, my guess is that you agree with most people in our world that Jesus was at least an expert or highly advanced in a number of areas in his life. He was a courageous leader. Most people will give you that. He was an excellent, excellent storyteller. He was an inspiring speaker. People were drawn to him. People were were motivated and led to do better things. But based on this story, I mean, I've never heard anyone say Jesus was a convincing actor. But I mean, think about this. He's stringing these two along, presumably, right? I mean, maybe Jesus, we could, we could put up there, he's an Academy Award-winning actor as well, because and he leads these two people on as if he has no idea what they're talking about. Well, the men tell Jesus their version of the story. And through this story, they share with them their hope. So Jesus had asked them, what things are you talking about? And they said, say to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Verse 21. But we had hoped, there's that word, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes. And besides all this, 
It is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. They tell their story in the past tense, right? They're talking about a whole bunch of things that happened. Jesus was a prophet. Jesus was condemned to death. Jesus was crucified. But then their story takes a shift. It takes a shift in verse 21 when they say, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, which is really that that prophecy of Isaiah again that Matthew quotes in his book. They're saying, we had hoped that he was the one, the one that he had said he was, the one that all these prophets speak about. We had hoped that he was the one that we'd been waiting for. They describe their hope in the past tense. Now, the Greek word that that Luke uses here to tell their their story here, it's in the imperfect tense. We don't have an imperfect tense in in English. All of our tenses are imperfect, I suppose. Uh, For those that are trying to learn the language, it's a whole bunch of difficulties, isn't it? But in the Greek, the imperfect verb means it refers to a continuous past tense. So this isn't isolated to one event. It's not like they hoped, you know, Jesus did a miracle and they hoped maybe he was the one. It actually communicates a continuous past action. They had hoped, they had continued to hope that Jesus was the one he was going to redeem. Until, of course, we can make the assumption he was killed. Because how can anyone be rescued by a dead man? But their tone changes right after they tell this story what is currently happening. They almost sound like a young kid who comes home and tells you about their field trip to the zoo. Like their mouth can't keep up with their excitement in their mind. It's just one thing after another. Boom, 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 boom. And you feel this momentum of of these two men telling this story to this stranger who is actually Jesus. And, And you think about it, and it almost sounds like this hope is springing up in them again. Listen to their list. It's the third day. And on this very day, some women, not just random women that they've heard about, no, 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 friends of theirs, people who have walked with them and journeyed and followed Jesus with them, these women that they know and trust, they visited the tomb that very morning, and guess what? Jesus wasn't there. His body was not there. And then the women saw angels, and these angels talked to them and told them he is alive. And then other friends go and check it out, and it's exactly like the women had told them. These are seeds of renewed hope for these two walkers on their way to Emmaus. No matter how confused they may have been, they had reason to be amazed, reason to be curious, reason to be hopeful. In fact, their hope has moved past past hope. It's moved beyond past hope. They're experiencing new hope as they cling to this new idea that Jesus might really be alive after all. Hope is nothing new to this story, but it's the first time that it's described in this way. Everyone hopes in something, but not every hope is worth hoping for. These travelers had hoped that Jesus was the one who redeemed, and they're hoping now that the reports they're hearing are true. But there's another man in this story. There's another man who's hoping for something else, and his account is also recorded in Luke's gospel. It's the fifth of the five times that hope is recorded in his gospel. But his, his, uh, 
His story about hope is recorded a little bit earlier. Not on this same day, not on the same fateful third day after Jesus had been killed, but a little bit earlier in the time leading up to when Jesus was crucified. The man is seen as one of the villains in the stories because, frankly, he did a lot of villainous things. And Luke refers to him simply as Herod. Now, we're, we're probably familiar with the name Herod, especially this time of year. We're, we're familiar with King Herod who talked to the Magi and was jealous and, and wanted all the young, young babies uh, killed in the Bethlehem region. Uh, this is actually not that King Herod. That Herod died. This is his son. He had a number of sons. And the younger Herod's name was Antipas. And Luke talks about him a lot in his stories. The other gospel writers do a lot. And most of the stories revolve around Herod, Antipas, and John the Baptist. The two of them did not get along very well. John kept talking about things that he was involved in, and Herod was not very impressed by them, and it ends up with John getting killed because of it. But but Herod seems to have this weird fixation with Jesus. His father did as well. He seems to be looking over his shoulder quite often, which maybe that's just a habit that all politicians have. But he, he kind of has this, he's mesmerized by Jesus. He's curious, and at the same time, he's jealous. And just like his father, he feels threatened by him. But Luke tells us in his 23rd chapter that Herod gets to meet Jesus. Finally, he finally gets to meet Jesus not long before Jesus is killed. And the reason why is because he happens to be in Jerusalem at the time that Jesus has been arrested and Jesus is is talking to Pilate who's kind of trying to figure out what in the world we do with this Jesus guy. So Pilate finds out that Herod is in Jerusalem and because Jesus is from Galilee and that's the jurisdiction that Herod rules over, well, easy. You just pass him off to Herod. And Herod is quite happy to meet Jesus because he's been waiting to see him for a long time. But his excitement doesn't last long because... Well, he doesn't get what he hopes for. Luke chapter 23, verse 8. Luke tells us that the reason Herod was so glad to see Jesus is because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So Herod questioned Jesus at some length, but Jesus made no answer. It's a short story. Herod wanted to witness a miracle. He wanted some sign, some display of wonder. And based on what we know from Herod, he probably thought his expectations were going to get met. He'd heard about Jesus. Again, these stories had spread. People were talking about him. He'd heard about miracles. He heard about demons being cast out. He heard about healings. He heard about his teaching. At one point, Herod even said to some of his others, who is this guy? Is this John the Baptist come back alive again? Like his capacity to believe was pretty huge because he got rid of that John the Baptist guy. He hears about this other guy that's doing amazing things and he almost thinks to himself, well, maybe John the Baptist raised from the dead and, and this is him again. So his capacity to believe and wonder and hope was quite large. So we can envision Herod jumping at this chance to see Jesus finally and hoping that he gets to witness and experience some of these things that other people have been talking about. We don't know what would have happened if Jesus would have given him a sign. What if Jesus would have healed one of the attendants that was was there with Herod? What if Jesus would have grabbed Herod's crown and pulled a rabbit out of it? You know, What would have happened? I don't know. I don't know. But I know that I've hoped for signs like these at some points in my life. 
I've hoped for signs that Jesus is really who people says that he is. Signs that Jesus is powerful enough to do things that I can't. Signs that Jesus is worth putting my hope in. And there's really nothing wrong with hoping for any of these things, but it can be dangerous to put all of our hopes in those things. So Herod hoped to see a sign. He wanted a fireworks show. He wanted some sort of display of wonder. Maybe he was looking for some sign to believe, but instead he got silence. And because he wanted a sign and got nothing of the sort, Herod gets rid of Jesus. He sends him back to Pilate, and in a really weird conclusion to this story, Luke tells us that Pilate and Herod became friends on that day. Before this, in their history, they didn't like each other. They were enemies. But somehow, they develop a friendship, presumably based on the fact that neither one of them knew what to do with Jesus. All of us hope in something, but not every hope is worth hoping for. Herod's hope disappoints, but the hope of those on the road to Emmaus, it lives on. Why? Because the men finally discover that the man they're walking with is not a stranger. It's not some random person who has had his ears closed and he has no idea what's going on. The man they're walking with is the resurrected Jesus. Their greatest hope is actually realized, and yet it grows bigger than that. Because the greatest hope about Jesus is about what's to come. All of us hope for something. All of us hope for something. And this is the time of the year when many of us do our most wishful thinking. We make Christmas wish lists. We make New Year's resolutions. We take time off of work and we spend it with others. We stare out the windows at the snow sometimes and we wonder about the meaning of it all. And if we really care to admit it, We do the same thing that Herod did and the same thing that those walkers to Emmaus did. We hope for something more. What do you hope for? Is your hope worth hoping for? And if your hope was to actually be realized, would it really make a difference in your life at all? All of us hope in something, but not every hope is worth hoping for. As a church, as a community of believers, as a community of followers, we have a number of hopes. And one of our hopes, in fact, one of our expectations is that we get to hear from God. When we gather together, whether it's a group of two or three men who meet together to pray and read the Bible, whether it's a larger group and a life group, whether it's a ministry leader group, whether it's our public gathering here, whether it's the kids upstairs, when we meet together, we have a hope and we have an expectation that we're actually going to hear from God. Just as he spoke to his people long ago, prophets and leaders and commoners, women, men, sinners, just as he spoke to them back then, we have an expectation that he speaks to us now. And he speaks to us in many ways. He speaks to us through his story. He speaks to us through people. And my hope is this morning is that he's spoken to you some way about the hopes that you have. So as you've listened to this story, I invite you to dwell on that question of what do you hope for? What do you hope for? And if you'd like to talk to someone about your hopes or your dreams, what you feel like God is putting on your heart, then please talk with some of us. I'll be over at the side and Pastor Brad will make himself available as well. You can talk to us because God has a way of speaking to us through his 
people. Dan and the band are going to come and lead us through a few more songs, and they're going to be leading us through songs that declare the greatest hope of all, which is Jesus. The celebration of the Christ child who is Jesus. The one who willingly gave up his life so that we might have life. His name is Jesus. The one who rose from the grave and who has power over the grave is Jesus. The one who was and is and is to come. Let's pray.